0: This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a Tiny Desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash 90-desk contest. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about the week ahead, a week that will have a lot of stuff going on here in Washington, including, of course, President-elect Trump's inauguration this Friday. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter.
1: I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
0: All right, back at it again after a long weekend here. First, some housekeeping. One, if you didn't see the announcement in the feed already and you are in the D.C. area, Come and see us do a live show at the Warner Theater in downtown DC on Friday, February tenth. The three of us will be there. We are looking forward to it. The live shows are always fun.
1: Yeah, and I've so done one.
0: It was
2: folks. and it
1: was great. And the
0: Warner Theater, I mean this is pretty awesome. It's, I've never
2: been it's, there. Like, it's just
0: Google image it. It's yes. like this it's beautiful big, place. Right? It's big, it's
1: gorgeous. I hope we can fill it.
0: It's very ornate. Yeah. Help us fill it, y'all.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Please. Also, a uh, special episode for me because that will be my last episode as co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast. Oh, man. As I've said before, I'm leaving this podcast a bit after the inauguration to work on a new podcast that you will hear soon. So come on out and see the show and watch me shed a final tear. Does this have a name yet? Uh, my final show with y'all? Your podcast. No, your new Sam's podcast. Goodbye. Oh. Um, Sam's long goodbye. It's my new podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, we're just going to call the new show Dominica. I, go for it. Dad jokes. There you go. Yeah, just That'd call it dad jokes. Off. Dad yeah. jokes? Okay. <clears throat> Anyways, tickets are on sale at nprpresents.org. Also, speaking of the inauguration, we'll do an episode wrapping up the day's events on Friday. Look out for that one. We'll also have an episode out tomorrow after Barack Obama's final press conference as president. All right? Okay. All right. Okay. So let's talk about the transition of power that will happen later this week. Donald Trump will take office as the least popular president in some 40 years. Something like only 40 percent of Americans view him favorably. That is according to some new polls from CNN and uh, ABC and The Washington Post. Compare that to 79 percent for Obama when he came into office, 62 percent for George W. Bush when he came in and 68 percent for Bill Clinton. Um, Question is, does this matter, these low numbers for Trump?
2: You know – the thing is, as these things get high and then they drop pretty quickly. Yes. So I don't know that they matter legislatively. The most important thing to legislating is numbers. And right now, Donald Trump has big numbers, huge majorities in Congress. Now he doesn't have a filibuster-proof Senate, which is a big deal. President Obama had that; and was able to get the health care law through in part because he had those sixty votes. Donald Trump doesn't have quite that, but he's got the House. He's got a majority in the Senate. He controls
0: the agenda. That's really the most important thing. And aren't the Republicans making moves to be able to do things like repeal the ACA without having to deal with filibuster?
2: Yeah, they are. I mean, and that's part of the ACA was passed through reconciliation, which is this budget process where you have to you need 51 votes to get things through. Not 60. Not 60, but they have to be tied to the budget yes. somehow. They have to be monitored. So things like pre-existing conditions, things like staying on your parents' health insurance till 26, they can't repeal those uh, with just 51 votes. Gotcha.
1: Right. But I mean, if you're asking if approval ratings matter... I mean, they they do to some degree. I mean, I dug up an old blog post, or old being 2013, uh, by John Sides. He's a political scientist at GW. He uh, was one of the co-authors of that book, The Gamble, that came out right after the 2012 election. And he wrote, you know, the association between approval ratings and what gets done in a particular presidency, it's complicated. It's hard to draw very distinct direct lines. However... There have been examinations of this that showed that approval rating has been associated with laws being passed that look a bit more like what the president's preference is. Aside from that, this is early to be talking about this, but uh, midterms, when the midterms come around, a president's approval rating has to some degree been shown to be associated with the share of seats that are gained or lost. So, yeah, as far as that goes, Trump's approval rating right now, you know, it's bad. But, you know, what? his fellow Republicans m- may hope that he would pick that up by, what, 2018?
0: Yeah. I mean, my thing with Trump's low numbers, he's at high negatives the whole election, mm-hmm. and he still won the election. I mean, I also think, like, you think back to Obama. And Obama came into office with really, really high numbers, but he managed to only pass Obamacare With just Democratic votes, no Republicans came to support that law. I mean, isn't it all about how much of your party is in the House and Senate?
1: Well, I mean, as far as jumping back to your election comment, I mean, yeah, he had really low favorability ratings. But then again, so did the person he ran against. And so, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, that's just a choice between, you know, one or the other person. So, But as far as the law goes, I mean – Up until recently, I would have said, you know, what matters is do Americans, for example, like the ACA? Do they not like it? But then I saw this poll that came out today from NBC News that showed that for the first time in their polling, at least – Americans think that the Affordable Care Act is generally a good thing, and that is the first time that more have said it's good than bad.
0: Forty-five percent said it's good, right? Which is a higher favorability for Obamacare than for Trump right now,
1: right? And well, forty-five said it was good, forty-one said it was bad. So gotcha. it's a, bu- it is in the black, yes. you might say. So the question is, you know, yeah, they have the they have the numbers in Congress, but do you want to repeal something that people like a lot of parts of? You know. <laughs>
2: One thing to understand about favorability ratings, too, is that when you're engaged in politics, your favorability ratings tend to decline. So uh, remember, Hillary Clinton had these soaring favorability ratings mm-hmm. when she was Secretary of State because she was seen as above politics yeah. at that point. Michelle Obama has incredible favorability ratings even higher than her husband. But I guarantee you, if she ever ran for anything, that
0: would change. <laughs> yes. those that would change
2: quickly. would yeah, plummet. And but I will say this. I do think it indicates at least somewhat that Trump has something of a short leash.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting is some of the data points that you see amongst Trump supporters. Like a lot of Trump supporters are saying he shouldn't tweet so much. He should stop doing this. You've got people that voted for Trump saying we don't like how he's handling this transition.
1: Absolutely. And one thing that I noticed when I was looking at the Favorability numbers today is there is a distinction between favorability and approval. There there are questions right now saying, Do you approve of how Donald Trump is handling the transition? They have asked this of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, et cetera. Uh, But then they also ask, Do you view Donald Trump favorably? Now, Donald Trump, only around four in 10 Americans view him favorably. And according to the ABC Washington Post poll, only around four in 10 approve of how he's handling the transition. Now, Look at another president who was at least relatively viewed unfavorably. George W. Bush, for example, his favorability was around 56 percent. But the amount that people approved of his transition, that was in the 70s. Even the people that may not have liked him, that signals that they said, well, he is handling this respectably, perhaps.
0: What does that look like? Handling a transition respectfully?
2: Well, you know, usually, <laughs> you're you're not picking people who are so outwardly controversial. Uh, you know, it, it's a pretty easy thing to pull off. You pick a lot of people with government experience who are highly qualified for these positions. Trump has picked people who um, are controversial in some ways, are are outside of uh, the traditional mold of people who you would pick for those cabinet secretary positions. Um, he's tried to make a splash, frankly, with almost all of those kinds of positions. Um, and there's also a difference between favorability and approval rating in. A presidency. Usually it's pretty easy to win fairly high scores for your transition. (laughs) But as president, people can like you. It's what we call a feeling thermometer. If I like you, I don't like you, how I feel about you, that's the favorability rating. Mm -hmm. The job approval rating
0: is whether or not I think you're doing a good job as president. And right now he is... Doing negatively in both of those regards. Right. Okay. Now, Trump did tweet back about all of these recent numbers. He said today, quote, the same people who did the phony election polls and were so wrong are now doing approval rating polls. They are rigged just like before.
1: (laughs) You know, what what I thought was interesting about this was uh, today, actually, Tamara Keith flagged a quote from Senator John McCain for me. And I'm going to paraphrase him a bit, but he said something to the effect of, Perhaps the reason that Donald Trump has some bad numbers is that he you know, tilts at every windmill. He yeah. picks a lot of fights. He, nice he, Don
0: Quixote reference.
1: Well, yeah, he, that he will raise a fuss over many, many things and he just doesn't let some things lie was the gist of what John McCain was saying. And so what's interesting then is that he comes out and tweets about how he's upset about these polls showing that his numbers are bad. I mean, it's sort of a snake eating its tail thing that could be happening yeah. here.
0: And I think the question is like. Does this change once he becomes president? Sean Spicer, his soon-to-be press secretary, keeps saying that Trump will probably tweet. Um, But will the style, tenor, and frequency of said tweets change?
2: The best indication of the future is the past. There you go. There you go.
0: (laughs) Wise words, Domenico. Yeah? Okay. Let's talk about some things President-elect Trump said in two separate interviews since last week. One with the Wall Street Journal and another with two European newspapers. In those conversations, Trump called NATO obsolete, quote, because it was designed many, many years ago. Uh, He said his idea from the campaign once more that countries aren't paying what they should in NATO and also says that NATO didn't deal with terrorism well. He called the European Union basically a vehicle for Germany. He also uh, talked about America's One China policy and said that it's up for negotiation. China responded in an editorial in a state-run newspaper China Daily said that Trump is, quote, playing with fire and that, quote, if Trump is determined to use this gambit on taking office, a period of fierce, damaging interactions will be unavoidable as Beijing will have no choice but to take off the gloves. What is up with seemingly in just two quick interviews, Trump has set off or continued spats mm-hmm. with multiple foreign leaders
2: throughout the world. You know, Trump is always looking for leverage, you know, and he's he's been t- touting the kinds of things that he wants to try to accomplish, whether it goes to China devaluing its currency, uh, trade uh, deficits with China. Uh, when you think about NATO, you know he doesn't think NATO countries are paying their fair share. But the, these things raise real questions about the direction that Donald Trump wants to take American foreign policy and where America stands in the world. You know NATO was formed after World War II as something that has now become a check on Russia and the former Soviet Union. It was a way for those Western countries to have an alliance that could say to Russia to stop any kind of potential encroachment. Uh, and when you're talking about trying to walk some of that back, it makes a lot of American allies very itchy. You saw that in Angela Merkel, the uh, German chancellor's response to this, uh, where she said essentially Europe could stand Don't on alone. its own. Right? Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you've heard Trump say that uh, NATO is very important to him. Uh, You heard his defense secretary uh, nominee pick James Mattis take to his hearing last week and say that NATO was the most important alliance maybe in the history of alliances ever. And he said that he's told Donald Trump that. He said Donald Trump actually has asked questions and might try to gain a deeper understanding of this issue. So you have a potential conflict within the administration. You have Donald Trump, uh, who's continued to talk about NATO, where he really stands on this. We're only going to be able to find out once he becomes president what he's really trying to do. It makes American allies... Very squeamish, though, when they see how much he has praised Vladimir Putin and Russia, something that Angela Merkel, for example, in Germany does not want to be compared to, you know, Putin as an equal, for example. Yeah.
1: The only thing I would add is as far as the stuff about the EU and Brexit and all of that goes, I mean, I, I raise my eyebrow a little bit at that in the sense that yeah, it, this is what you would expect to hear from him. Right. I mean, yeah. he is. He Brexit. I mean, he has raised a lot of policies to combat, you know, some of the effects of globalization. And it really does make some sense that he would be fine Uh, with the EU, you know, coming apart a bit. But I just wondered when I heard this, you know, it's shaking its fist, it's thundering at the European Union, but I wonder how much that matters to anybody in the European Union, you know.
0: I think for me what's most interesting is that for most presidents and their administrations, regardless of their stance on foreign policy, there is a pretty universal understanding that everything when it comes to foreign diplomacy, every word means something. And every word must be taken carefully. (laughs) And every statement and every speech and every address is carefully, carefully crafted because every word means something important. And it seems as if Trump has thrown that idea out the window.
1: Right. Well, with Trump, my sense is that with a lot of what he says, you know, there's all this talk about taking him literally or figuratively or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, you know, we all laughed when you said every word needs to be chosen carefully because, you know, Trump says a lot of big things where maybe every particular word is not perfectly calibrated. But with Trump, it doesn't necessarily seem to be about every single word, but about a feeling. Is he conveying a feeling? For example, when he's talking about one China, when he's talking about Brexit, he is always trying to protect America's back. Yes. He is trying to project a particular image. And so I think that's sort of the attention that he's going to be dealing with. What feeling is he getting across? But people will take you at your word is what he may come to find, or at least people have taken past presidents at their word. That may change. I don't know.
2: You know, I've had Trump transition officials tell me that Trump bristles at these protocols. They, They don't understand. He doesn't understand why these protocols are such a big deal. On diplomacy. Like, for example, with Taiwan, you know, he took this phone call from the Taiwanese president and it cause something of an international kerfuffle with China. Uh and but Trump said we sell them two billion dollars worth of arms and I can't take a phone call from somebody, that kind of protocol doesn't make sense in mm-hmm.
1: his view. I suppose I, I suppose I would add though, like yes. he, he, Harry Harry Domenico say that. I mean that kind of common sense way of saying something like that. Well, you know, we sell them all of these things. Of course I can take a phone call. I mean, that's why people like him. That sort of straightforward, you know, why should I follow all of these highfalutin rules when, you know, this just just makes sense to me. That's what I want to do.
0: Yeah. And if he believes and his supporters believe that the whole system is rigged and broken, why would you follow the rules of a rigged and broken system Mm -hmm. anyway? Right. Right. Anyway. Meanwhile, the Democrats, they are busy in Congress fighting battles over Obamacare. There were a series of rallies held by Democrats around the country over the weekend to rally supporters of the Affordable Care Act. Bernie Sanders was a headliner for at least one of those rallies. Uh, And on the Hill this week, there are hearings for more Trump cabinet nominees, including Betsy DeVos for secretary of education. Scott Pruitt for the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Tom Price is Trump's pick for health secretary, and he is sure to face tough questioning from Democrats over his opposition to the ACA. And then Rick Perry, former Texas governor, is the energy secretary nominee. He will have to talk about the department that he once said he wanted to eliminate. Uh, what are we watching this week in terms of those hearings, guys?
1: OK, well, let's start with Tom Price, because he's related closely to the big topic of the moment, the ACA. So Tom Price is a Republican representative from Georgia. And, you know, of course, one of the big things that he will be asked is, you know, what do you think should be done to replace the ACA? And, of course, he has been one of the fiercest opponents of it. Now, one issue he will likely come up against is Donald Trump's statement over the weekend that he has a plan nearing completion and that he wants insurance for everybody.
0: You get insurance. You get insurance.
1: You get insurance. (laughs) Look under your seat. Uh, So So the question is, you know, then. How? Yeah, how? How exactly would that work, and how would you control costs and all of that? So, of course, that will be a big part of this. Aside from that, uh, there was a report out from CNN this morning about a potential conflict of interest that uh, Representative Price had in the past. Basically, what it what it is is that last March he bought shares in a medical device company called Zimmer Biomet. Then, shortly thereafter, he introduced a bill that would have delayed a law that would have hurt that company. Then, after that, Zimmer Biomet's PAC donated to Price's re-election campaign. Huh. So I'm sure that that will come up as in some of his questioning. Could that
0: stop him from getting picked, though? I mean – the Republicans have the numbers, right?
1: Right. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. But you gonna can have to
0: peel off a couple if that's what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. What I'm saying is you can definitely expect to hear some Democrats, you know, thundering yes. away at him about that. Yes. Yeah.
2: Someone else who might get some tough questions uh, from Democrats and possibly Republicans here is Trump's pick for Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. You know, she runs this uh, company called WindQuest Energy with her husband. They invest in wind power companies. She's a known advocate for charter schools and school vouchers. She's a, a GOP donor, former Michigan State Party chairwoman, her husband is Dick DeVos, the son of Richard DeVos, who's listed by Forbes as the 88th richest person in the world. He's worth more than $5 billion. So that's where their, uh, where their fortune comes from. But the left is upset with her because uh, unions see her as somebody who's very anti-public education. She's once said that public education is, quote, a dead end, and they don't see how somebody who thinks public education is bad is now going to oversee public education. On the right, they're starting to to be this growing uh, sentiment from the kind of Tea Party grassroots that uh, they don't like her because of past support for, wait for it. Common Core.
0: <laughs> Just a refresher. I, we know what it is, but it's, I haven't heard it in a while. Common
2: Core is a set of standards that has been implemented under President Obama, but was originally written by Republican governors. It started in many circles with uh, Bobby Jindal, who's the governor of Louisiana, uh, Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida and who ran uh, unsuccessfully for president in 2016. But that whole script got flipped and turned into uh, something that some liberals and some conservatives were very upset. With not only the Republican governors who had supported it, but obviously the Obama administration, because they dangled this funding through Race to the Top uh, for people to sign on to Common Core standards in order to get federal funding. What about uh, Scott
0: Pruitt?
1: Right. Uh, So Scott Pruitt, who is a former attorney general of Oklahoma. There will be plenty of bones to pick for some probably Democrats on the panel who are questioning him. For example, he has voiced a lot of opposition to the EPA in the past. He has called it activist. He has been involved in 14 lawsuits challenging the EPA involved in some way. Aside from that, he has said that climate change is, quote, far from settled. You can expect a lot of questioning on that. Aside from that, there may also be some questions about his ties to the energy industry. Uh, One 2014 investigation from The New York Times found what The Times called a, quote, unprecedented secretive alliance, end quote, between state attorneys general and the energy industry. For example, one of the big instances they pointed out was a letter that Mr. Pruitt sent to the EPA saying, you know, you're overestimating the amount of pollution that is being caused by digging all these natural gas wells. Well, As it turns out, that letter had been written by lawyers from a company called Devon Energy. And then his staff put it on, you know, as the Times described, it put it on stationery. Mr. Pruitt's signature was put on it. And then it was sent off to the EPA. And then there was an email exchange where the the Devon Energy guys say, this is great. Thank you so much. You know, and so there is there is a fair amount of collaboration behind the scenes. So. To the extent that that upsets some of the people on the panel, that may come up as well.
2: You know, the big headline out of last week was just how many of Donald Trump's picks disagreed with him yeah. on policy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm watching to see if that's true again this week, as much as some of these substantive pieces of policy that we've dug into to figure out what these folks are going to try to do with those agencies and the enforcement that they're going to oversee.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have time for two questions. You can email us your questions to nprpolitics at npr.org. First is a question from Irina. hope I'm getting that right. It's about the Affordable Care Act. She wrote, quote, the Republicans keep insisting that the ACA needs to be repealed because it's not working. The Democrats claim that the plan is working and is just beginning to come into its own after some expected growing pains. What are some of the metrics used by each side to prove their case and what conclusions can really be drawn about Obamacare's success? Good question.
1: Well, so let's start with the most recent news, which is a report that came out from the Congressional Budget Office just today. Uh, That is a nonpartisan organization that is associated with Congress, does lots of estimations of the effects of different laws. Now, what the CBO found is that repealing Parts of the Affordable Care Act, you know, this would not be a full repeal of all of the provisions, but of a lot of the budgetary ones.
0: The mandate, the subsidies, those In, being the two biggest yes, things, Yes, right?
1: individual mandate, employer mandate, and Medicaid expansion, that sort of thing. Yes. That getting rid of those within the first full plan year would increase the number of people who are uninsured by $18 million. Now, this is assuming no... Replacement. This is purely repeal, but, yes. ju- but that just repealing those portions of the ACA would increase the number of uninsured. Not only that, but it would boost premiums by 20 to 25 percent. A big part of that, they said, would be because you would likely have fewer young healthy people, more older unhealthy people proportionally on the rolls. Yeah, Yeah.
2: I think it really depends on what that actually entails. But to get to some of the arguments uh, that Irina brings up, uh, Democrats also point to the number of uninsured and how that percentage has dropped. Uh, Certainly nobody would disagree with that. That's because of the mandate Mm -hmm. that's in the health care law requiring people to buy health insurance uh, if they're not covered by their employer. Of course, that has made the insurance uh, rate drop. When Donald Trump says that he's going to keep everybody insured, get everybody insurance, well, it's going to have to be lower than what that percentage is currently. Um, Democrats also argue that rural hospitals would suffer. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, say that premiums have increased, uh, that you are increasingly stuck with one option if you're in these exchanges, and that prices are going up. Democrats counter and say that prices are actually going up slower than they had been before the Affordable Care Act was put in place, and that, yes, some places they're stuck with one option, but they would hope to have more competition uh, into the marketplace. But that is a problem for uh, for
0: sure at this point. Mm-hmm. The thing with the high prices, aren't a lot of them, or some of them at least, subsidized. So it's not really as right. high as so, the first amount would seem. That's right. Yeah. Some people, based on how
2: much money you make, you get a subsidy uh, that you have to put toward it. I mean, clearly, the difficulty in the red tape to just get insurance is something that Republicans have been able to use against this law, because it's not the simplest process. Right. You know? at
0: all. But even Democrats admit there are some problems with Obamacare that yeah. need to be fixed. But right.
2: it's very difficult to fix something that has been uh, stuck as such a lightning rod and you don't get the kind of cross aisle collaboration that's really necessary to do that.
0: Yeah. Another question we got from Sarah that is partly about the growing number of Democrats in Congress who are boycotting Donald Trump's inauguration, including civil rights icon John Lewis. Sarah writes, quote, Hey, guys, I am planning to go to a march in Tel Aviv on Saturday, which is a sister march to the big women's march happening the same day in D.C. My question is, do you think the pushback to Trump, the protests, the congressman not going to the inauguration, do you think all that makes him more popular or less popular? Sarah. Good question. Um, For folks that don't know, there's going to be a big march and a few events in D.C. the day after Trump's inauguration, the Women's March on Washington. This is basically a response from opponents to Trump and his policies. First of all, wow, a sister march in Tel Aviv? I didn't, I mean, that's that's kind of fascinating. I hadn't heard about that. I mean, I think that, like, when you talk about people like John Lewis boycotting the inauguration, people that love John Lewis probably don't like Donald Trump. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, like, how much of this stuff is just going to, convince people who are for or against Trump to go further into their corners. You know, it's interesting when
2: you think about uh, whether or not protests or marches can create some kind of groundswell for change. Um, there are obviously times in our history when that was the case, when presidents were open to meeting with leaders of those movements to say, what can we do with you? How can we work together? It's going to be interesting to see if that is a way that Donald Trump reacts to something like this or if he just sees them as political opponents um, meant to be bludgeoned and taken down um, and put in sort of list. You know, It's like he has two buckets, bucket A of people who seem to be supporters and friends who he can trust and bucket B of opponents who are kind of irredeemable, uh, to borrow a word from Hillary Clinton, and who he doesn't need to uh, bring on board. So how he decides to deal with this is going to be an interesting thing. But you're right. I think that it's, it is it is difficult uh, when Republicans have the kinds of numbers that they do, when you have an opposition that doesn't quite seem to accept that Donald Trump is a legitimate president in the way that John Lewis certainly uh, mentioned uh, over the weekend. You know, I think that it can be hard to see any kind of reconciliation out of that.
1: As far as the Women's March goes, I mean, I, the two things that I would say is that You know, it is true. And I've heard a lot of people, you know, talking about this, like going to the march itself doesn't affect any change. It doesn't change any policies, blah, blah, blah. Why even bother? One thing is that, I mean, it matters to the people who are doing it. And this sounds very soft focus and everything. But I mean, going the the sense of empowerment that comes from seeing the number of people who are in this group with you. I think that this is the sort of thing that can sort of light a spark under a lot of people. And, you know, think back to the Tea Party, how it started out, mm-hmm. you know, and became a movement. the people showing up at Congressmen's town halls, people, you know, dressing up. and so like we there are all sorts of visual associations we have with of the Tea Party because they were so active and so effective at protesting at getting their message out, and, you know, at eventually getting a lot of, you know, yeah. backing from larger political organizations. So I would argue that that, You know, that should this spark something bigger and continue past it, it could be a big deal.
0: When I think about the effectiveness of marches, I remember back to the run up to the war in Iraq and there were countless of anti-war protests throughout the country and the world, some with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. The war still happened. Um, There there, there are lots of times where protest does not change policy, but there are lots of times when protests can change the conversation. Mm -hmm. If you think about Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street, after a year or two of them being out there in the streets, every politician worth their salt began to talk about income inequality. So they can change the conversation. You know, after three years or so of the Black Lives Matter movement, we had debates between presidential candidates where they talked about... Things like implicit bias. Right. That was a result of the Black Lives Matter movement. Totally true. So protests can change conversation. I'm not so sure that it can directly, immediately change policy. But when thinking about how to change policy, the best way to do that, whoever you are, is to call your elected officials and tell them what you want. Hmm. Also, we just got word of news that President Obama is largely commuting the sentence of Chelsea Manning. This is the Army intelligence analyst behind a massive leak of government secrets and data in 2010. We'll have more about that in our episode tomorrow. And that is a wrap for today. We'll be back with an episode tomorrow evening, wrapping the president's final press conference. You can stay up with our coverage on NPR.org and on your local public radio station. And again, we'll have a post-inauguration episode up on Friday. Also on that day, you can hear us live on your radio during NPR's special coverage of the inauguration. That starts at 10 a.m. You can hear NPR and reporters from stations across the country covering the speeches and the protests and reaction to all of it. And we'll have a live fact check of Donald Trump's inaugural address that will run at NPR.org during the speech. And one more time, tickets to our DC live show are at NPRpresents.org. Please come. It's going to be fun. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter.
1: I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political
2: editor.
0: Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.